0: So how are you holding up? Our normal world has been so disrupted, disrupted, and I know that I've been feeling pretty disoriented and kind of sluggish. The old routines are gone, and adjusting to this new reality has not been easy. I find myself being unsure about, like, what am I supposed to do next? I often feel like I'm just kind of walking through waist-deep mud. Things are harder, a little slower, nerves are tense, emotions are strained. So it's important to do positive things to kind of counteract the heaviness Of what we're going through. It's important to give yourself some grace and equally important to give some grace to the people around you. I'm also so glad you made the positive decision to join together in worship today. We can encourage each other as the body of Christ even though we're not physically together. I'm thankful that we've got these virtual tools available to us so that we can be together. I saw a post uh, this week that read, When God closes a church door, He opens a browser window. And I like that. That could be maybe our motto for the time being. Today, we're going to look at a man who faced unforeseen circumstances that completely upended his normal routine, and in fact, his entire life. He's one of those minor characters that we find near Jesus as the death sentence is leading him to the cross, and his name is Simon of Cyrene. Three of the Gospels mention him, but only in passing. He gets one verse per Gospel. Here's how his one verse goes. In Mark's gospel, Mark 15, 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by, passing on his way in from the country and they, meaning the Roman soldiers, forced him to carry the cross. That's it. Not much to go on, but God has given us enough clues in this one verse to tell us a lot about Simon of Cyrene. You know, back during the Middle Ages, most people in Western civilization were illiterate and uh, the worship services done by the Roman Catholic Church were in Latin, so which no ordinary person understood. Latin was the languages of the priests and the royalty. So how did ordinary people learn the Christian faith and the stories of the Bible? They learned visually through art, through stained glass windows and statues and relics and other artistic depictions of Bible stories. One of the most common ways of teaching about the death of Christ was through a series of artistic representations called the Stations of the Cross, which walk people through what happened when Jesus was crucified. The fifth station was entitled, Simon Helps Jesus Carry the Cross. And it depicts Jesus at his lowest point. Jesus is on His last lap. He's walking the Via Della Rosa, the road of sorrows that wound through the streets of Jerusalem and led to the place of execution outside the city walls. He's already been slapped around, humiliated, judged, punched, kicked, stripped naked, and worst of all, scourged. Scourged. The Roman soldiers would stretch Him out over like a wagon wheel and use a special torture tool that looked like a baseball bat with strips of leather tied at one end like whips except the leather straps were studded with razor-sharp rocks and bits of glass. Some tough guy would swing against Jesus' back like he was taking batting practice. And the leather straps would wrap around the victim's torso. And then when whipped away, chunks of flesh would be ripped off the victim's back. By practice, the Romans knew that the average man would die after 40 lashes because of the trauma and the blood loss. So 39 was the magic number. Just enough to turn Jesus' back into hamburger, but not enough to kill him. Then the transverse bar of the cross was forced on Jesus' shoulders, and he had to carry his own crossbar outside the city where the vertical poles were already sunk into the ground. The crossbar was like a railroad tie, weighed about 100 pounds, not an easy load, especially after all he'd been through. So Jesus is on his last lap. The the end is in sight, but he stumbles He falls, and this is God incarnate sprawled out onto the cobblestone. Wouldn't it make sense for Jesus to flex some divine muscle at this moment of agony? You know, kind of rise up in his omnipotent power, really show them who's boss, you know, start spinning that crossbar like it was a majorette's baton? No, because though Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% human in a real human body. He shared all our physical limitations. He wasn't pretending to be human. He didn't pretend to suffer. His nerve endings flared just like yours. His muscles ached. His agony was all too real. And so he crumbles under the strain, but the Romans, they're not going to be denied their execution. So they grab up some poor dumb schlub out of the crowd, make him pick up Jesus' cross so that they can reach the place of the skull called Golgotha. There was a famous moment in the Barcelona Olympics back in 1992 when British sprinter Derek Redmond was running in the semifinal race of the 400 meters and he was looking really strong and suddenly he pulled up, he'd torn his hamstring, he crumbled to the track and the other runners just passed him in a flash. But rather than give up, with his face contorted with pain, he just stood up, he started hobbling towards the finish line. Redmond's father, Jim, was watching in the stands. He saw what happened to his son. He raced past security, got out onto the track, wrapped his arms around his son, and with tears in both their eyes, they finished the race together. This was not that. In fact, it's the exact opposite. This man, Simon, did not take this job willingly. He did not raise his hand and volunteer to help Jesus out of devotion to the Savior. He was forced into it compelled, it says, in both Matthew and Mark. No, this was no loving action inspired by faith. It was actually Simon's worst nightmare. You know, the Gospels are so concise with their words and their descriptions that we're only given a few clues about Simon, and yet it's enough to give us kind of some significant things that we can know about him. First of all, he's from a place called Cyrene. Cyrene was situated on the north northern coast of Africa along the Mediterranean Sea in what would now be called Libya. It was settled by the Romans in 630 BC and later had a big influx of Jewish settlers. It was the capital of that region during Jesus' time. Because of his African location, many scholars speculate that Simon was black, that he was an African who converted to Judaism or he was of mixed descent like many of the modern Jews in Ethiopia. And like other Jews, he had longed to make a a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast at the Great Temple. The Gospels tell us he came in from the country. He's a passerby, a tourist. He's just looking for a good t-shirt, probably knew nothing about Jesus, had never heard him preach, had never even heard his name. Simon and his friends from Cyrene, they've just traveled there and they stumble into this impromptu procession as a criminal is being led to his cross. And I think maybe curiosity pushed him to the front of the crowd, get a good look, and then he gets grabbed up and tossed into the limelight. No one goes to Disneyland hoping to end up in an executioner's parade. But there he is, now a centerpiece in this drama. And worse yet, he didn't know what might be waiting for them when they reached their destination. Would the soldiers let him go? Or maybe just add his list to the people being crucified? And what about the crowd? The crowd was out for blood. They were at a fever pitch. When they see Simon, you know, when they see him as a Jesus sympathizer who should share Jesus' fate. In a flash, his whole life was in danger and none of this was his fault. It was life interrupted. I think we all know what that feels like. Our lives have been suddenly interrupted and it's no longer life as usual. Whenever there's an experience that's so disruptive that it turns life upside down, whether it's potentially a deadly virus or a traverse beam of an executioner's cross, whenever something unexpected, something bad happens, there are three questions human beings just inevitably ask. Three questions. Why me? Why this? Why now? Why me? Why this? Why now? I'm sure Simon was asking those questions. He had been minding his own business, he was doing the right thing, came to Jerusalem as a pious Jewish believer making a religious pilgrimage to the Holy City. Whatever was happening in the streets, well, he had no skin in that game. Jesus meant nothing to him, and yet his life is suddenly on the line. Why me? Why this? Why now? Does God hate me or something? You know, we can all feel that way, that somehow we are being singled out from the rest of humanity for this unfair trial that we don't deserve, that somehow we're the only ones who have to suffer or struggle in this way, that the trial that comes our way is unique to us only in the entire universe, that God has put a bullseye on our backs and has singled out for us for some special mistreatment. That's a normal response. To an abnormal situation. Why me? Why this? Why now? If there's anything we learn from the COVID-19 crisis is that we're not the only ones who are affected. We are not being singled out. In fact, it's the exact opposite. What makes this current crisis so unique is that it's everybody's business. The whole human race. When was the last time the whole world was on edge at the same time about the same thing? I can't ever think of a time before this. So there should be no why me pity parties going on. We have to kind of just shake that off and instead there should be a sense of we are all in this together, a real solidarity, not just here in America, but we've got to be rooting for the extinction of the virus all across the globe and every nation praying for that. Because if it's not eradicated around the world, then there's always the potential it can come right back with a vengeance. So yes, we're annoyed when our or we're hit with uh, some unplanned detour that disrupts our normal lives. There, There is inconvenience. There is a financial hit. Our relationships do feel the strain and all the rest. But all these experiences are common to people all around the world and not somehow unique to us. Now, I'm in no way minimizing the real pain people are experiencing. There's a lot of loss going on right now, a lot of grief. Things that we were looking forward to that just won't happen the way that we had envisioned. Uh, Graduations, proms, weddings postponed, that idyllic senior year just right down the tubes, a job opportunity that maybe has now evaporated, restrictions placed on travel or seeing our loved ones. I mean, Don and I, we were scheduled to go to Indianapolis to see my brother and his wife. She's battling late stage pancreatic cancer. And so it's really important that we go and see her, and all that's been canceled. And so we're frustrated and deeply disappointed. We're not sure if the airline, what they're going to do in terms of ticket refunds and the rest. So life is is filled with losses right now. And often our true character is revealed in times of crisis. How we respond to disappointment and loss tells us a lot about ourselves. When a dream dies, when things don't go as planned or as prayed for, we can't always choose or predict our moments of suffering or uncertainty. Life happens, and it's sometimes unsettling. We can feel frustrated in the moment, angry, when things don't go our way. But after that initial rush of emotions, that's when we really have to look at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Do we spin and spin, let anxiety build up? Do we let our resentments smolder and burn? Do we continue to kind of wrap ourselves in a blanket of pity and sadness? Do we throw in the towel and just give up? Well, no. In Christ's name, no. No. That is not the Jesus way. In Jesus, we find a different motivation for living and a different source of power so that when we fall down seven times, we can rise eight. This is the life of Christ. We call it the cruciform life. The cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. The cruciform life is the life of Jesus taking shape in us, uh, expressing himself through uh, our love for God and our love for others. Each of us as disciples becomes more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We live as a son or daughter of God. We try to be a servant of Christ in our personal spheres of influence. The cruciform life means we live out the truth of Galatians 2.20 where it says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We live in Jesus' words from Luke 9. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and daily follow me. Take up your cross daily, crucifying our egos, our self centeredness, so that Christ can live in and through us. When we surrender to Jesus Christ, He becomes our Lord. He replaces us as our final authority. You have to take your ego off the throne of your life and give Jesus that proper place. There has to be a death to self and then a rising of life to Christ. The Christian life is really based on this principle. We deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily. Carrying the cross has more to do with laying down your life for someone else. Something that may be painful, it may be difficult, it may cost us something. Something we we really don't want to do, but we know Jesus wants us to do it. And I believe that's the way Simon responds. Mark gives us a clue as to that effect in Simon's life. He identifies Simon as a certain man from Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now Mark specifically mentions the names of Simon's sons. Why would he do that? There are so many unnamed people in the Gospels who had direct contact with Jesus. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery. Why name these two sons Alexander and Rufus? Well, it's because they were well known to Mark's readers. Bible scholars speculate that the Rufus mentioned by Mark is the same Rufus greeted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 16. He's described as a close compatriot of, of Paul. Mark's Gospel was written in Rome and it was written for Roman ears so naturally it was natural for him to make that family connection to his readers. Now Alexander, the other son, he's not mentioned in Scripture but church history records that he was one of the first martyrs who laid down his life for the cross. So it begs the question, how did these sons become so well-versed in the Christian faith that they became well-known in the ancient church? Well, it was through their dad, through Simon. It's worth considering what impact this experience with Jesus had on Simon. Did he witness the execution? Did he see Jesus, the way Jesus died? Did he hear his words from the cross? The words of forgiveness, did he witness Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, weeping at the foot of the cross? Did he rub elbows with the disciple John who was there? Maybe get an invitation into the circle of the disciples? Was he still in town on Sunday? Did he hear of the resurrection? Might he have been one of those Cyrenians who heard Peter on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? And when he returned to Cyrene, was he eager to tell the story of what happened to him? Of how his life was changed by the true Passover lamb who was slain for the sins of the world? Did he become one of those men of Cyrene who in Acts 11.20 are mentioned as those who first shared the gospel with people who were not Jewish? You see, I believe that this encounter with Jesus changed Simon's heart. At first he might have resented this disruption to his life. Maybe he felt pity for Jesus as a criminal condemned may have been filled with self-pity or resentment for, uh, for himself, but I believe at some point his heart changed. Once he carried that cross beam for Jesus, you know, he just couldn't go back to his old life, his old habits, his old self. He couldn't just go back to that. I, I believe Jesus changed his heart. I believe it took, that he took the gospel news back with him to his hometown, and then he brought his two sons to faith in Christ. And his wife also, because she's mentioned by Paul in Romans 16, where Paul describes her as someone who has been a mother to me. That's impressive. So now as we put all these pieces together, we see the whole story. What Simon thought to be the day of his deepest danger and his most frustrating interruption, it turns out to be the beginning of his highest honor that he could possibly have. It was through that intervention that he himself was saved by wondrous grace. And then going back to Africa and telling the tremendous story of his experiences in Jerusalem, his wife comes to know the Lord and his sons experience grace. During this time of disruption that we're in, I would like all of us to be open to what the Lord might want to do in your heart. God often uses these unsettling circumstances to reveal himself in new ways to his children. Too often we all go through life just kind of on autopilot. We go through our faith on autopilot. And then something happens that forces us to take a fresh look at life and faith. Can you be open to God doing something new in your heart during the season? Be open to Him. Use this extra time that you do have for prayer. To ask, you know, what is this good God up to? To say, God... What are you up to in my life? What is it, where is it that I need to grow? You know, how is it that you want to speak to me? Be open to that. There are many people who are going to be resentful of God during this time because their plans have been changed or interrupted. I felt this way, and I know you've probably felt it at times. We resent it when some circumstances come into our lives over which we have no control, especially if it involves pain or suffering. This was the attitude of Simon of Cyrene at first when he bore the cross, but he changed. Here is a man who unwillingly took up the physical cross of Jesus, but then willingly took up the spiritual cross and followed Jesus with his whole life. So please be open to what God might be doing, that he's doing a new thing in your life in this season. And one more final word to fathers. If church tradition is right, that Simon had a tremendous influence on his sons, Rufus and Alexander. Dads never underestimate the impact a godly father can have on his children. Dads need to lead by example. Dad needs to be the spiritual leaders in their homes, even if your own father was not. Your sons and your daughters need to see what a godly man looks like in the way that you treat their mother, the way you conduct your business, the way that you love them. Your children need you to set a good example by your love for Christ. And it's great to see all the dads in my neighborhood now out with their kids and kind of riding bikes and taking walks. That's great. What an opportunity. But what an opportunity to reconnect with your kids in ways that you haven't been able to in your normal routine. What a great time to pray with your kids at night, to read them Bible stories, to talk with them and your faith as a family. And if you haven't really done that before with your family, this is just such a great time to start. Make that investment in the spiritual lives of your children. You will not regret it. So somehow in the process of carrying the cross, God did a work of change in Simon's life. I'm sure it took a long time for him to process, but this event transformed him forever. He came to eat the Passover lamb. He found himself helping the lamb carry his cross. He came to remember redemption, and he saw the Redeemer with his own eyes. He came to celebrate freedom and he was set free by the Son of God. Simon's life was disrupted by something he would rather not do, and yet it changed his life forever. I think this is something we can all learn from, as God sometimes calls us into things that we don't want to face. So be open. Be open to what a good God wants to do in your heart in this season. Amen, and let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this Simple story of Simon, Lord, just a few verses in all the Gospels, and yet it kind of opens up just a wonderful look into the lives of this family and how it was transformed by this experience, Lord. As unsettling as it was, as painful, as difficult as it was, Lord, we're thankful that his life changed. And Lord, as we look at our circumstances now, may we be open to you doing a new thing in us, in our nation, in our world, that you'd send out your Spirit upon our families and our neighborhoods and our cities and our towns, our nation, and our world, Lord. Send out your Spirit. Do a new thing in us and help us to be open to carrying our cross daily as we follow you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we've been so glad that you have joined together in worship with us today. Remember, next Saturday between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. to pick up your uh, Holy Week survival kits. But we're really looking forward to having a great Palm Sunday celebration next week. God bless you.